Hi, welcome to the Newberry Files. I'm Michael. And I'm Rebecca. And this is a podcast where two people read through every Newberry medal-winning book, and then we talk about it. Uh, This time we're talking about the 1959 Newberry Medal winner, The Witch of Blackbird Pond, by Elizabeth George Spear. And it's kind of become a tradition in the podcast. Uh, I guess it's not a very interesting tradition, but we talk about the author before we talk about the book. So, uh, Rebecca, what do we need to know about Elizabeth George Spear? Well... She is one of two authors that won two Newbery Awards, Um, so that's great for her. She lived in Connecticut after she was married, so prior to Connecticut, she um, was a high school English teacher in Massachusetts. What we found to be so interesting about her living in Connecticut is the books that we've read so far, several of the authors um, lived there, so Lois Linsky lived there, Madeline Langle lived there, and we think that Hendrik von Loon. He died. He died in Connecticut, so he must have been alive, living there at one point. <laughs> but that said, what a coincidence! I don't know what's going on in Connecticut, but these new very metal winners. My very boring theory is that Connecticut contains several cities that are suburbs to New York, and so I think that they live proximate to the publishing industry. That's a good theory. Um, One thing that we found to be very relatable is that Spear always had a a dream of writing, always saw herself writing books, but um, didn't actually write published works until her children were in junior high school just because the pressures of marriage and um, child rearing were so demanding, which um, completely understandable. We spent about an hour this evening with Screaming children. Yes. Our, sc- our screaming children, so and no so, time for writing. Well, and, and what this really means is that there's still hope for us that we could be Newberry Medal winners. In just 10 or 12 years yeah. until they're in junior yeah. high. Also, her first, pu- her first piece of work that was published was this article that she wrote about um, she and her kids skiing, which I thought sounded really cute and sweet. Um, she wrote almost exclusively historical fiction. Um, a lot of her books are set in New England since that's where she's from and where she um, was familiar. And she wrote six novels. So that is just a brief summary of Elizabeth George Spear. Yes, and so one of those six novels turns out to be, and the plot twist, The Witch of Blackbird Pond. Um, so I'm going to summarize the book real quick and then we can talk about it. So, my memory of this book... So, I've actually read this book before, actually. uh, But it was a very long time ago. And my memory of it is, oh, this is one of those books that's about Puritan witch trials. That was my resounding memory. And I remember that the protagonist of the book, uh, whose name is Kit, uh, I remember she gets accused of witchcraft and there's a trial. And so, it's also in the title, Witch of Blackbird Pond. Um, And so... I didn't remember a lot else about the book, and I was surprised to learn, returning to the book, that the aforementioned witchcraft trial is maybe only 10% of the book at most. It's a, it's a comparatively small... It's the climax of the book, but it's comparatively small. So what this book is actually about is... Two witches. Two witches, right. Um, two for the price of one. Um, but it is indeed set in Puritan times. Uh, this girl, Kit... Uh, has been living in Barbados. Uh, she is she is white and has lived on a sugar plantation in Ar- in Barbados that is owned by her grandfather. Um, 
and seemed to have lived this kind of like semi-aristocratic or, or at least like kind of liberated like economically life. Like she had this kind of carefree existence in Barbados, but then her grandfather died and it turns out he had all these debts that she couldn't pay. So they sell off the estate and then she has to move in with her distant relatives. Well, I guess not that distant. Uncle. Aunt and and uncle. Aunt, aunt and uncle. Um, in Connecticut. Uh, and they're Puritans. Unlike in Barbados, where she, I, it doesn't seem like she was particularly religious. They, like, went on Easter Mass or something like that mm-hmm. she talked about. Um, and so a lot of the book is just her adjusting from uh, the kind of carefree existence she had as a wealthy um, and also slave-owning, I, I think it bears to mention yet again, um, uh, person in Barbados to this much more austere and tough life in Connecticut where the Puritan family is kind of just barely scraping by because it's a lot more, um, it's a lot harsher um, in terms of weather and existence, but also she doesn't have slaves to do everything for her. And so she's actually got to do the the work. Um, and so she has to learn all of that. Um, and she's learning how to acclimate herself to Puritan life. Um, she kind of learns to understand like the kind of courting and suitor um, uh, shenanigans that she's expected to go through um, in order to be married off. She um, gets um, quite a bit involved in the politics of the time because at the time um, the Connecticut um, governorship has changed over and the new governor is sympathetic to the king of England. Um, and the Puritans are not sympathetic to the King of England, so there's a lot of, like, politics with that. Um, she also, at one point, um, befriends this woman um, whose name is... What is her name, Rebecca? Hannah Tupper. Thank you. It, so that uh, she, her name is Hannah Tupper, and she lives on... It's more of a swamp. She lives kind of, like, in a swampy area that floods frequently, but they call it Blackbird Pond. She lives in this little hut there. Um, and she is ostracized from this community because she is a Quaker. And boy, oh boy, do the Puritans hate the Quakers. And I do not know a ton of about like the sectarian differences between Quakers and Puritans. Um, but nobody hates a Protestant like a different type of Protestant, you know, and especially at this time. And allegedly, um, doing a little bit of research, uh, one of the things that the Puritans didn't like is that the Quakers were relentless in their evangelism and would always try to convert the Quaker or the Puritans. Um, and apparently the Puritans didn't do that. And so, but anyway, um, sorry, were you going to say something, Rebecca? No, I was just going to say, I did a little bit of reading on this cause I was curious too. And I, I don't remember learning any of this in school. And I don't want to say that I didn't learn it cause it's very likely that I was taught it and just forgot. Um, but I, I didn't know about this conflict, and I also did not know that there was a period of time in which Quakers were um, very evangelistic, like would would want to convert. Um, right. Read about there were different phases, um, but one thing that just contrasts these two groups is that the Quakers were just um, very very relentless in their mission to help people like take care of one another like that that was a big thing is just that they care for one another and um you know it's it's foundational they're the friends you know um so I just I think that contrast is really stark is all I was gonna say yeah 
so anyway, Hannah, as a Quaker, is not welcome in this Puritan community, and so she lives and on the outskirts. Go ahead. She and her husband have been driven out of Boston. And her husband is now dead. Been, yes. Um, she lives by herself. Like, they were, they were branded and driven out. Although I, I... Correct me if I'm wrong, but it was not this Puritan community that did that to them. It was a different no. Puritan community. It, it was in Boston. So they're in, in Connecticut in, now, been driven out. Yeah. Um... But regardless, the uh, this woman is living by herself, and Kit kind of befriends her, and they both bond over being... I mean, Kit is not an outcast in the sense that um, Hannah is, but they're both not really at home within Puritan society. Um, and so that's kind of how the book goes. And it's, it's not a particularly plot-driven book for a lot of it. I mean, things happen and things advance, um, uh, kind of these different threads, like Kit trying to figure out how she fits into Puritan life, Kit navigating suitors, and there's this one guy, William, who seems very interested in Kit and um, wants to marry her, and she's like, well, uh, if I marry him, then people will quit bothering me about this, but also I don't really like him that much because he's kind of boring, um, which he is boring, I agree. Uh, and then the, this other one about the her befriending this outcast, and... Uh, it all eventually comes to a head because uh, illness breaks out in the town, and so a lot of the tensions surrounding, like, Kit not fitting in. Uh, oh, she's also a school teacher and uh, runs into some trouble because um, she has unorthodox for the time uh, methods, um, like having children act out things from the Bible, and so she's kind of under suspicion because of that. Uh, but anyway, uh, a lot of the tensions come to a head when illness kind of pushes the town to a breaking point, uh, and then, uh, as apparently happened a lot in Puritan communities, because most of what I know about Puritans comes from this in the Crucible, uh, they start thinking that there's a witch. And of course, the natural inclination is it's Hannah Tupper, the, the Quaker is a witch. Um, and, but she escapes, uh, and so the only person left in town that they can accuse is Kit. Um, and so the book kind of, I mean, this is like maybe the last 30 pages of a book that's over 200 pages. So, um, I guess we've spoiled like 95% of the book, um, which isn't really a spoilery book. You know, like I said, it's not very plot-oriented. But, you know, um, eventually things work out okay. It's not as depressing as The Crucible. Um, but that is when the witch trial happens, is at the end, after all of these tensions have kind of built for, you know, a couple hundred pages. Um, so, yeah, that's the book. Yeah, so I don't know... I, I don't think that we mentioned I've never read this before. Um, Michael had, but I never had. And I don't know how I escaped this book in my childhood. I was familiar with this book. I knew everybody had read this book. Um, but somehow I escaped it. I devoured this book. I loved it so much. So we're going to start with what we like. Um, but one thing that I really loved in this book is just that the centrality of relationships and these big decisions that have to be made. So throughout the book, people have these very strong and clear and real convictions about what is right and what is wrong. And some of that is about politics. Some of that is about religion. Some of that is about education, like how children should be educated. What's the purpose of um, literature? You know, there's there's a lot of themes that go, like, Kit is very familiar with books and loves reading. Um, 
and the Puritans, the, the sole purpose of reading is to read the Bible, and that is to improve your life or to be honoring to God, to avoid hell, all of these things. So there's just a lot of that, the beauty of the arts is kind of stripped away, and that's a struggle that Kit has to navigate as she moves from Barbados to Connecticut. Um, so... Oh, I, I just want to jump in to say that, like, one of the things about her rich life in, um, in Barbados compared to the Puritans is that she had lots of books like Shakespeare and stuff like that, whereas yeah. the Puritans, because they have a more austere life and also more rigorous religious convictions, literally only read the Bible. Yeah. So th- there are, like I said, these, these very real and strong convictions, and some of that is driven by fear. Some of that is driven by just deep-seated values that these people have. But over and over again in this book, we see that what trumps those ideologies is just that interpersonal connectedness of the community. Um, so some places I saw this is when um, when Kit is awaiting her trial, she's in the shed of the constable, and the constable's wife comes to see her, and she sees that she's dirty and that she's cold and um, that she doesn't look presentable. And so regardless of what they think Kid did or did not, you know, she's like, there's no way that you're going to be able to stand a fair trial if you look like this. Let me help you be presentable and let me get you a blanket. And I don't think this is right that they're doing this to a kid. And she even makes this funny aside. It's not funny, but I just th- thought it was ironic. She was like, yeah, I don't think that that he's going to want to be up for re-election again. We don't like this. We don't like this harboring people in our shed. So you see um, just just that valuing of that humanity in one another that really drives this book home. Um, and so another place that we see that is just with the relationship between Hannah Tupper and Kit. And there's this other little girl, Prudence, that um, gets drawn into this relationship. Hannah Tupper has you know, every reason in the world to fear these people, um, to fear that they would drive her out, that there would be people that are coming into her home to hurt her, but she welcomes them in and, um, you know, she needs that human connection. So there is something that she stands to gain from that. But, um, like those religious differences are, you know, a, a moot point to her because these people need her and she needs them. And then I think also with Kit's uncle, we see him have just very, very strong political and religious views and not, um, you know, he, he makes this big deal about that they're harboring a royalist when they take Kit in, you know, because she's loyal to um, the English crown. And um, I, can, I, I understand why yeah, people feel I, that way. Yeah, you're you're gonna get on your soapbox in a bit, but but there are just things about Kit that just conflict with his um, just core sense of being, but he still takes her in, and he also accepts this young minister, John, who is in love with his daughter, who he has strong disagreements for. Um, he goes and gets the doctor that is, you know, that he said he would never allow him to set foot in his home again when his daughter is dying. He goes and and gets him, and it was this really sweet moment because he goes to get the doctor, and the doctor was already coming to him. Like, both of them just kind of putting all of those ideologies aside to 
to take care of people in the moment. And I say that to say what I what I appreciate about this book is it doesn't make the conclusion that these things don't matter, but it makes the conclusion that these things are not the ones that matter the most. Um, if if these beliefs and these ideas and these thoughts are going to prevent us from taking care of one another, that's not what what wins out in the book. And you know, Kit also that that's one of the the reasons I think that she's found innocent is that, um, the, like I said, there's this big relationship between this little girl, Prudence, and Kit. And one of the things that she comes under fire for is that they think that she's, like, indoctrinating Prudence and, like, teaching her witchcraft. But the dad found, when he finds out that Kit's actually been taking the time to teach his daughter to read, he's like, I've wanted to read the Bible my whole life, and now I have somebody in my home that can read it to me. So... I, I just thought the book did that really well of having those little moments as they drive the plot along. Um, and, and it does become central to everyone's character development. So I thought that that was really great. Another thing that I love about this book is just the setting. I think it's very clear. Um, I think it has a very distinct sense of place. And so one thing that we mentioned was um, Elizabeth George Spear a lot of her books are set in New England, so she's obviously familiar with um, that area. Not this time period necessarily. She didn't live that, but um, she does write about what she knows. And um, she also, this this is a fictional book, but there are characters from history, um, like real characters that are central to this plot. So I like how, um, I, th I thought she did that well, especially for a children's novel. Uh, just balancing that fiction with the history. Um, so those were the big things that I liked. What about you? Um, I mean, I liked all those things too. Uh, I agree that the relationships are well-defined and um, the overriding like idea about like how this need to take care of one another eventually supersedes like, uh, you know, all the the different, like, ideological differences and stuff. Um, that's all very sweet. I also just enjoyed that, I mean, this isn't, this is an easy read. Um, and I mean, nothing but maybe the story of mankind that we've read so far has been, like, a difficult read. But everything that we've read so far for this podcast, with the exception of Wrinkle in Time, which is a newer book than this, but all the other books have felt old-fashioned in a way, reading them. Like, you can, they have the feeling of, children's literature from another era. And this is the first one that we've read that feels like, I mean, there are things that would be different about this book if it were published today, but in terms of how it is written and how like the, the prose works and everything, it feels like I'm reading a modern children's book for the first time. Um, and I have nothing against older books, but it was kind of a nice change of pace for me. And it's, it's really, I think it's pretty, it's it's really solidly written. It doesn't really break the bank in terms of like really reaching stylistically, um, like maybe someone like Madeline Langle would do or some of the later books that are, you know, become a little bit more experimental in, in terms of prose style. But, you know, in terms of a certain kind of, uh, like certain kind of like children's literary realism, um, you know, where you have like, you know, really clearly defined scenes um, that are connected with, uh, vivid but not particularly like ornate descriptions and then you know um, 
contemporary sounding dialogue and how the characters are. I don't know. Like I just, it was nice. Like I enjoyed, uh, I, I enjoyed the act of reading this book because it was comfortable. It was a book that felt, I felt it was very at home. Like, Oh, I know what this book is doing. Um, and it was, it was fun to read that way. I mean, part of that is I've read this before, but, um, I do think that this, this feels, um, it feels like we've crossed some sort of Rubicon in terms of history where the books feel more closely genealogically related to modern books than they do the older ones. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I liked that. Um, I think otherwise, I'm not sure that there was much I liked that you didn't already mention. Um, I, uh, like I said, I agree. Go ahead. Let me ask you this. Because in a previous episode, we, when we read A Wrinkle in Time, we gave our what we thought about the book then and what we think about it now. Has anything changed for you since you've reread it? Well, I mean, given that I couldn't remember anything from... I, I thought the book was entirely about this witch trial. Like, in my memory of the book, my memory was she comes to this Puritan town, she's an outsider, she gets wrapped up with uh, Hannah Tupper... And then everyone thinks she's a witch, and then there's a witch trial, and that's the majority of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not the case at all. So I think, I don't know if, if you talked to me when I was like 10, or whenever it was that I read this book, I probably would have given you a different summary, because it would have been fresher in my mind. But the legacy of this book in my head was the witch trial. And that's probably also because it's mixing in my head with the crucible, which I yeah. I teach frequently to my students. And so that's, you know, when you're thinking of like, witch trial, you know, stuff. I mean, in The Crucible, it starts and, like, immediately it's about witch tra- witchcraft mm-hmm. and everything. And this book does not. Like, it takes its time. Like, I mean, it introduces the idea of, you know, oh, witches. Like, there's a scene early on where she has to jump in the water to get something, like, as she's entering the, the village. And she can swim, because in Barbados they swim, because the water's not, you know, 40 degrees. But, um... And everyone is like, oh, you can swim? I didn't know ladies could swim. And uh, one person mentions, like, oh, in witch trials, they throw the witches in the water. If they can float, you know, they're, they're a witch. Um, and so, like, that, it's seeded early on. It's not like it comes out of nowhere. But the biggest difference from how I remember the book to now is that the witch trial is merely the climax of the book rather than the sole, like, central incident of the book. Yeah. Well, as for things that we didn't like, I I think this is going to be my complaint a lot of times when we're reading YA books or books that are like similar to YA books in terms of like the romances. I'm not bought into the love story between Nat and Kit. It so I don't think that we got into this in the summary, but so, Oh yeah, we so didn't. Sorry. Made, Okay, so this is one of those books that you see Kit talking to two guys on the boat when she's coming over, and you already know she's going to end up with one of them. So you gotta, you gotta, if you're like me, you gotta picture these two guys as people that you would also be attracted to, and then decide throughout as you read the book who do you like better. So is it and are me they and Timothy become, Chalamet? Is that is you know, that what we have? We don't have to share that information. Who, who did you picture <laughs> these two men you. as? I'm and not, I one of them. I'm not telling you. So anyway, and then as you get through the book, whoever you like better becomes more attractive. That's what happens. So clearly one of them is Timothy Chalamet. But I... (laughs) No comment. So so anyway, she meets these two guys. 
one is a preacher doctor guy. I can't, it, it was weird. I don't know. He's like studying religion, but also studying medicine, and he was going to do both. You talking about John? Yes. And then um, Nat, who is the captain's son, that is like really flirtatious and kind of picking on her the whole time. He can, can also tell. swim, so. Yeah, he, you know. So, witchy stuff going on. Um, anyway, so you can tell from the first scene, well, she's going to end up with one of these guys. And it's just, she ends up with Nat, and the whole relationship is just a marriage of convenience to, to make sure everybody is matched up at the end of the book. And as a kid, I love that stuff because, you know, that, that just makes for a really good bow at the end of the book. But it's just completely unnecessary. I think especially, I say it's completely unnecessary, but then I do know that a single woman in the tiny town of Connecticut probably needed to get married, you know, financially, yeah. Well, and she wise. considers that throughout the book because she's yes. about to end up with Mr. Boring yeah, Pants. Yeah, so I, I get that it's, you know, it's a transaction. I get that. It's important. But you're supposed to be like, oh, they're in love. And they're, I mean... He's got a boat. He's great. I'm, I'm glad she ended up with Nat. He's got more going for him than these other guys. I'm really glad she didn't end up with, what's his name? William. William. He's boring. Half the time really I thought his boring. name was Edward because he was so boring. It was like one of those Is names. Edward a more Literally, boring name than the William? the only thing that you need to know about this guy is he has money. And that's why Kit's attracted him at first because she's like, oh, he's more sophisticated than all these low lives that, you know, live like slaves. So I just, I, I don't know. I get why it's there. I understand. But it's just unnecessary. I would also add... Because I also found the relationship unsatisfying, like how it turns out. And one of the problems is, so she is seeing William constantly throughout the book because he comes courting at their house all the time. Um, but you you don't see Nat that often because he's on this boat and he's sailing off. And like, there's a large section of the book that takes place during the winter time when the boat's not there. Yeah. And, and here's the other annoying thing about this relationship, which is is just an irritating trope is that half the time Nat is disdainful of Kit. Like he's annoyed with her. He thinks that she's shallow, which she is. He thinks that she's, you know, pretentious, all these things. He's picking at her the whole time. And he's really just there to teach Kit something and put her in her place. And then they're married. I just, I don't know. I'm going to make a brief, defense okay. of this relationship even though I just said it's I unsatisfying like but I think like thematically there's something interesting because throughout the book as William is coming courting like it's not just that he's rich but it's also that she thinks that she will have more freedom when she is with a rich man because yes. she won't have to do all this menial labor that she has to do with her family yeah um and so it's not just a marriage of convenience or class, like, inherently, but it's also a, a marriage of her kind of bristling at the role that she has been slotted into in uh, the village and seeing this is, a, this is a way that where I can have some measure of my freedom that I experienced in Barbados back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when she ends up with Nate, or Nat, uh, he offers her that same freedom and more because he's not got a stick up his butt because he's not really like all that bought into the Puritan stuff. And he's got a boat so they can sail around and stuff. Right. So, I mean, 
throughout the book, a big tension is she's like, oh, the Puritans are so, Puritan life is so restrictive. We have to go to church twice on Sunday. Um, we have to sit still during church. Like, we have to do all these things that restrict my ability to choose the kind of life that I want to do. And in the end, she finds the guy that can give him the most freedom. So there's, like, a yeah. sort of economy to it. And I think that's why if she had got married to the other dude, William Edward, whatever his name is. It was William. I know, but it's William just, Edward. he's so boring. Maybe anyway, like Jonathan if Edwards. she had gotten married yeah. to him, it would have made more sense, I think, in, like, terms of just financial security. Again, I'm glad she didn't. I know why she didn't end up with him. But I'm just saying, if this was a Jane Austen novel, she would have ended up with William, and he would have had a change of heart because that's that's what would have happened. I'm not saying that's you what should have happened. You don't think that... Uh, that's kind of a Mr. Darcy kind of guy, a guy on the fringes of society right. who is always razzing her. But he doesn't have the money in the same way. That's true. Anyway, I'm getting off on a few rabbit trails that aren't quite connecting. Um, but what anyway, else did you not like I, about the book? So, the other thing is, <laughs> I, she never really reckons with her owning of slaves. Like, they sort of, like, mention that, and, you know, her family bristles at the idea that, you know, she was slave-owning, and that's a bad thing, and she's like, oh, well, they just live like slaves. I'm so much better than them. And she never really reckons with what that means, and just... The weight of that, all, all that really happens is she ends up working really hard when her cousin is sick. Um, she ends up having to do all the household chores because everyone is sick. She doesn't get as sick because she's like a hardy woman, I guess. And um, she ends up caring for everybody and realizing like, oh, this work is important. It's not below me. Um and if I go back to Barbados, I know now that I can, like, work my own way. I don't have to just depend on somebody. I, I, I can work. I'm, I'm not too good for work. But that's kind of, like, the way that I interpret it, that's kind of, like, the end of her journey through considering, like, how she was raised and what life she's living now. And so I just, I felt like, I don't know. I just felt like that there was were some bigger conclusions that could have been drawn there that weren't really. And I, I just felt like that's kind of, it was kind of framed as like, oh, here's a cultural difference um, that's made her snobby and mean to these people. And, and really, like, her journey through that is learning how to, like, not look down on her family, but not really to reckon with the idea that she owned other human beings and that that's problematic. And that's probably like a harsh interpretation, but that that was how I perceived it. Oh, you want to talk about harsh? Okay, go for it. Well, wait, um, what did you think about that? Like, was that also your interpretation? I Yeah, I I agree. And well, I guess we're going to transition to what I disliked about the book. Um, and I think that this is like emblematic of a larger problem that I had with the book, which, as I said earlier, like I enjoyed the experience of reading it. Like it... it it went down easy. I enjoyed the relationships and et cetera, but I was left very unsatisfied with the ending. Like I felt that the ending did not tie together all the different threads that have been going on in the book very well. And like, honestly, it's because it gets distracted with the witch plot. Like the witch plot is a distraction from a lot of the stuff that have been going on. So like when you first come in, 
there's all this stuff going on that I thought was really fascinating. Like this idea that Puritans are abolitionists, which, or I guess anti-slave, like, I, I don't know if abolitionist is the right term because it's kind of like predating a lot of like, there's no slave trade in, to speak of in this book that they, they abolish, right? But they are disdainful of the concept of slavery. Um, they're also disdainful of the concept of royalty uh, and the idea that any one person is is hierarchically above another person. Um, and those two things seem to be interwoven. Um, and then you also have, you know, all the political tensions that are surrounding that. This um, governor uh, is going to try to impose English rule over a sovereign uh, state or a sovereign colony of, of Connecticut, which has its own charter and all this sort of stuff. And... I just don't think that the book goes anywhere with this. Like it ultimately, like you said, it's kind of like backdrop for her character's journey in becoming a harder worker and kind of appreciating what she has and appreciating the people around her, even if they don't live like her. And that's all nice, but it doesn't like there. I don't know. Like it's like she proves herself to them by being really industrious and that's it. And it makes me wonder why those things were there in the first place in the book if it wasn't going to be explored more. And I realize it's a kid's book. And also I realize it's, um, in terms of the time period, it would be anachronistic um, to expect her to have some sort of like modern concept, concept of racial like equality or whatever. Like, I mean, she is raised in, you know, an apartheid situation in Barbados, you know, in a colonizing situation. And I, uh, another side note, uh, that's something that's never touched on in the book in terms of like modern morality, uh, is that there's like this ongoing war with the Native Americans throughout the book that people are just like, yeah, they go off and they're going to fight the, the Indians and then they come back and they're like, oh, there's another Indian fight and they go off. And again, I understand like within the setting that this is, it would be anachronistic to expect someone to sit up and talk about like Native genocide or like we're stealing people's land or whatever. Um, and so it's not that I expect that to happen, but there are certain conflicts that are set up at the beginning of the book, um, that don't just feel like conflicts of like, well, these people need to learn to appreciate one another. And, and maybe this is just baggage I'm bringing in, but when you have people who, it's not just that they don't appreciate one another, but one of the first things that the, her uncle says to her when he's learning about who she is, is like shocked that she owns slaves, shocked that she's like, uh about the king of england like they're like this is like fundamental to the conflict between these characters and it is nice that she helps and works past that but it's almost like why did we bring up these issues to begin with if we weren't going to meaningfully interact with them like the witch trial does nothing to deal with the plot surrounding the governor right which is a major thing throughout the book like there's all these that meetings is true that's true i didn't think about like that. there are all these meetings about uh, what are we going to do about this governor who's going to impose the king's will on our sovereign society? And Well, wait. So I, I have just one thought about that. I think that the whole subplot about the new governor and um, the charter of Connecticut and, like, saving the charter, so that is something that I read in, like, um, the little book flap that there's like a comment about how every Connecticut child knows the, the story of their charter and oh, I knows that like too. this <laughs> thing. So I think that she wanted to put that in because it's like really important in the context of this history. But I think the way that she tried to make that important in this larger plot 
is really developing the character of this boring William guy because Kit is so surprised that William has come around um, to, to the side of like her uncle and what makes him come around is about taxes. It's, it's about money. But anyway, I think that that is there to develop that character of Kit saying like, oh, maybe this guy does have some values. Maybe he does have some, some morals. This is cool. He's a little bit more interesting. And then he ends up not showing up for her at the witch trial. So I did she's like that. Like, yeah. I'm going to dump him. So I, again, we're, we're making these really big subplots based on these flimsy parts that I think are like unnecessary. But anyway, yeah. I, yeah. And I guess like, I mean, this is the way that I would like to see it done. And it's obviously not the way that Elizabeth George Spear wanted to see it done. So, you know, everyone's got their vision, but if you're going to include fundamental part, not, not just like window dressing, but like make a fundamental part of these characters tensions within each other, these like really broad and big ideas like the idea of slavery or the idea of um, whether or not uh, Connecticut can be sovereign apart from, you know, royalty, um, and repeatedly incorporate that into the conflict and development of the book and then have a climax where, um, one, there's an illness that just kind of comes out of nowhere, which, fine, like, illnesses do. Uh, But then, two, all the witchcraft stuff comes up, and Hannah Tupper just disappears. Like, she literally just disappears, and we find out, like, in a sentence later on, like, yeah, she's doing, she's chill, she's doing fine. But they, um, they explain how she gets there. Kit and Nat help her escape, and then he stays with, she stays with Nat's grandma. Right, 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 right. I mean, they explain, but again, like, a lot of these, like, simmering things don't, I don't know, they, they don't get paid off in a way that feels like it culminates in that. Like, so, you know, Kit is eventually absolved of the charge of witchcraft, and people realize, oh, she is doing good, and that's nice. Like, that is a good, in terms of her relationships with other people, that is a good way to do that. But in terms of connecting it to the ways that she's been in conflict along these like kind of broader lines, uh, I don't feel like it's a very good resolution. And if we're talking about the larger themes, this theme of people, you know, kind of understanding that taking care of one another is maybe more important than the ideological lines that you would draw while also kind of recognizing, in the other hand, that these ideological lines have consequences as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the book solves the interpersonal part, but it never has anything ultimately to say about the broader, big problems. And so, you know, if I'm taking a theme... I think that's intentional, though. Like, I think that would be her conclusion, is that maybe these broader things are not as important. I, I You know... Maybe she does think that, and in that case, I would say that that's not true. I mean, the book goes out of its... Not not what you're saying is not true, but mm-hmm. if she, Elizabeth George Spear, thinks that, I would say it's not true. And in fact, I think her own book proves it, right? They find it very important whether someone is going to side with the king or side with the, the, the colony. Mm-hmm. And I mean, 100 years after this book takes place, right? Doesn't this book take place in the 1600s? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... In 100 years, that would become a literal, like, what, are you going to found the nation? Or, you know, those, people went to war over that. Yeah. And I, I, I guess I think that those things actually do have part of the interper- like solving that interpersonal puzzle of making sure we care for one another is figure is solving, okay, what do we do with people who are 
materially and ideologically opposed to one another and in a way that like because if those things are important then we can't just pretend like they're not existing and that's a, something that the book doesn't really seem to have much to say about well and i <laughs> i think that we're getting into i think i think one thing that's important about this book to note is that this book is told from kit's perspective so there's going to be things that you know, I, I'm being a little bit ungracious with all the romances. Obviously, that's very important to her. And obviously, those are going to be, you know, like central parts of the plot development because it's her perspective and how she's learning about all of these things. So I think that that's an important thing to note is I don't know how well Steer could have, like, given us a broader view. And, you know, but I guess you're saying you wish that she wouldn't have spent so much time developing this stuff if she's not going to do anything with it. Right, because a big part of Kit understanding Puritan society is starting to understand all these lines being drawn. And I guess, like, to me, whether or not you're pro-slavery or whether or not you're pro-monarchy is not the same thing as whether or not you're a Quaker or a Puritan. Like, and I mean, this is just my perspective as, like, you know, a boring, low-church Protestant person who never really, like, was that invested in, like, denominational differences and so I'm sure other people would feel differently but it's it's fairly like there there is a parallel being drawn there but one of those things whether you're a Quaker or a Puritan is fairly arbitrary another one of those things is a fundamental question about how you want to shape uh you know the society you're trying to build and I guess I agree that it's all from Kit's perspective, and so Kit herself as a kind of naive person who's just kind of learning about the complexity of the world, like, we're not going to get, like, a treatise from her. But also, like, there's stuff that just kind of objectively happens in the book. Like, um, so this character John um, that she meets on the boat at the beginning and is studying theology. Preacher doctor guy. Preacher doctor guy. He's studying theology from this dude um, who's a real guy. I don't know who he is, uh, but he's a real theologian Buc- in history. Buckley or something? I, I can never figure out how to pronounce his name. Yeah, so like this is an example of something that is Kit is completely separate from. We never see this guy in, we never see the theologian teacher in real life or, any, or, or in the book's narrative or anything like that. We do? Yeah, he comes to the house and saves mercy. And oh, you're right, you're right. And he's the one that reads him the Bible verse that you thought was so funny. He reads to Matthew about, now I can't remember what it is. But he, like, gets to choose the Bible reading. Okay. And I think it's about, like, paying homage to the king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're you're right. However, the point that I was going to make is this. Um, so that basically has nothing to do with Kit. It's a subplot involving this character, John. And at the end of the book, the way that the subplot is solved, despite the... Well, well so the theologian is pro-monarchy. And mm-hmm. this is a huge, like... Tension. And, and as you mentioned earlier, like Matthew, the uncle, refuses to let this man back in his house until finally he needs his medical expertise and etc. But then at the end of the... And, and John is having all these tensions. He's like, well, I really love this guy's teaching and I want to learn from him, but also I don't really agree with him about um, the British monarchy. And then in the end, he, John's like, you know what? I'll just, I'll just still be his student and we'll just forget about the, the monarchy stuff. Right? No, I thought he stepped away from him because of that. I thought he's... <laughs> all right, I'm going to keep talking and you look it up. Uh, I really thought that there was a line where he's like, I'll just ignore the Maybe parts of him that I disagree with. different endings. Ooh, this is like <laughs> a same clue, clue movie situation. 
But anyway, regardless, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Um, but I, whatever the case, I don't think that this book does justice to the political side of things that um, uh, form a large part of the place setting at the beginning of the book. And um, yeah, that's that. I found it unsatisfying. I liked the book for most of the time, and then I got to the end, and I was like, is that it? Um, <laughs> which is funny, because the end is the part that I remember from the book. Um, but anyway, uh, that's that. Did you find whether I'm right or wrong? I'm probably wrong. Okay. But Oh, oh no, you're right. He says, he will teach me theology and medicine, but I will think as I please. Right. So, so you're that's right. just I'm that's mean that's meaningless, right? Like Well, but I don't think that it's meaningless in terms of like this is what I was thinking of. I don't think it's meaningless in the character development of John because one frustrating thing about him throughout the book is Kit's like, "Can you not think for yourself?" Like I talked with you on this boat before you were ever studying under this guy and you had strong opinions and you had beliefs and you had a personality that was all your own. And now all I hear you talk about is what what's-his-face things. And so I think, again, it comes back to, I think Elizabeth George Spear is more interested in helping these characters develop in their relationships to one another that fits under the, that umbrella of these bigger things going on. So for for this guy, that is a big step of, like, I can still learn from him, but I don't have to learn everything for him, and I can have my own opinions and stuff. So right. I, I think that that is not huge in terms of these like grander things that are going on in the history of the nation, but it is grand in the individual lives of these people, and I think that that's what she's more interested in doing. Another way that she does that, in a way that I think was, I, I wonder if this was frustrating for you, but when they're when when Matthew and his friends are freaking out about the charter and freaking out about the new governor and that now they're they're gonna lose their autonomy, oh Matthew's wife, Kit's aunt. Rachel. Yes. She is like, I don't she's talking to the girls and she says, I really don't think this is gonna be as big a deal as he thinks it is, but I understand why he's worried about it. And I don't think it's going to change our lives that drastically. But I understand why this is important to him. And it's important in terms of, you know, I, th I think she makes some kind of statement about this This matters not. So I don't think that this matters so much in how it's going to change our individual lives. But I think it matters in, in this bigger picture that he's worried about. And for her, what's more important is how she takes care of her girls how she loves her husband, how they can keep on living. Like, she is so consumed by those things, she doesn't think it's going to be a big deal. And I I just wonder if that's what Elizabeth George Spear is trying to show. Like, there are important things going on in this bigger scene, and they're, they're not non-important. But what is most important is how we care for each other in the moment. And I think that that's what this book is more concerned about. I agree, and I think that this is a me thing, but caring for someone in the moment is not something that you can just kind of like neatly separate out from this issue. And I, it's, it's also very weird because she is an American writing about colonies who are afraid of being oppressed by the King of England. And that is like, there, there are a lot of things that are like 
controversial or contested about American history, but the one thing that is that we all have drilled into our brain from the, like the moment we start learning American history is the reason our country exists is because we were oppressed by King George and now we aren't. And that's one of the wonderful things about America. And I, it's just weird that the entire book rests in the shadow of this tension that they're talking about right now will eventually erupt into a war that like, you know, births an entire like schism in the British empire and it ends up not amounting to anything in the book. But why would it? I mean, we're not in 1776. Like, You're right. I just think that, like, but if she, the author, is taking the stance that, well, we can just, like, kind of, I'm not that interested in the bigger bigger political issues. I'm only interested in interpersonal. While using a, like, like one of the central, like, early political conflicts of the United States, what would become the United States. It's it's just weird. And like I, I said, it's a me problem. But, but. I appreciate that because I appreciate that, you know, these events didn't just play out in the way that we understand them now, not in the lives of people. The way that they played out were these conversations between neighbors and people taking sides and people getting up in arms and then some people deciding I'm, I'm still going to, take care of this person in this way. And I don't, I, you know, I think now we're getting to bigger theological, like, discussions that we have a lot, but I, what I appreciate is that I don't think that she says those other big things aren't important. I think she's saying this is not the only important thing. And that's how I read it and why I liked the book. Yeah, I think... That would have resonated more with me if I had felt like the ending did a better job of connecting all those things rather than just, like, like with John, right? So, like... I like John. I, so, don't be mean But But his decision to say, I'm going to think freely, but don't worry, I'll still be with this, this doctor theologian, that's an all right destination if there's a lot of, like, soul-searching there. But I, I don't know, like, the incidents that led up to that didn't, yeah. I don't know. It did it did, it just didn't feel it felt it didn't feel anticlimactic in the sense that there wasn't a climax because there was and the witch trial is the highest point of tension in the story, but it felt anticlimactic in terms of we've been breadcrumbed along all these big important ideas and in the end a lot of people just end up kind of looking past them. And that felt unsatisfying to me. Yeah. Well, We've gone on a long time with this. This is the longest <laughs> podcast good, episode. It's a good discussion, though, I think. Well, let's let the listeners decide. <laughs> oh, speaking of which, uh, deciding. So we're going to start transitioning to the end of our episode. But um, we uh, have not mentioned this in the other episodes of the podcast because this wasn't a thing when we recorded the upper, other episodes of the podcast. But you, listener, are now listening to this podcast after we have published it. Um, and uh, we have... This is the first episode that we're recording after we have made our podcast openly available to everyone on the internet, um, which means that in the previous episodes, we didn't have an email address, we didn't have a way for you to weigh in with feedback or to get in touch with us or anything like that, um, but we now have an email address because we needed that to um, create the, the profile to, to do the podcast. So um, it's in. It's been in the show notes um, and and the the description for the episodes in each episode. But this is the first time we're talking about it on air. Um, we do have an email address. So if you think that our discussion was bad, or if you think that our discussion was good, or if you just have unrelated thoughts, um, our email address is 
newburychronicles at gmail.com. And one thing that I'm particularly interested in is how you like the formatting of the episode. So one thing Michael and I have been talking about is we like to start with the positive because a lot of times that's what outweighs the negative. But then we end up ending all of our episodes just talking about negative things. And so we're just wondering, would you like some variety? Um, should we mix it up, start with what we didn't like, and then go into what we liked? So I'd just be curious on how people think of the formatting. Because what I don't want it to be is that we end on really negative notes about these books that we love, which I yeah. loved this book, which I know we're getting to in a little bit. I didn't love this book, but I enjoyed it. I did not. I did not hate this book, nor did I dislike this book. So do you give it a thumbs up? Yeah, not strong. I feel about the same as with um, uh, Strawberry Girl. Oh, no. I feel which is, different. I mean, Strawberry Girl had different reasons why I felt the way that I did. But in terms of neither book, both books ended with me not being very satisfied with how it ends. And so I kind of have left feeling the same way, even though I've, there are different things I like about each book. Yeah. So tell us what you think about the formatting. Um, and I give this book a very strong thumbs up, and I wish that I would have read it as a kid because I think it would have been one of my favorite books, honestly. Uh-huh. The other thing, I just want to make one more note about John, my homeboy. So what I will say about him and his decision to keep studying under the doctor, which I did not remember that he actually did that, so that's on me. But I do think that is a decision that every person in their life has to make at some point. Whether you're going to work under somebody, whether you're going to remain in community with somebody or as a friend to someone, or what you're going to do with your family when these important, don't get me wrong, they're important, when these important ideological, I never say that word correctly, differences, when these lines have to be drawn in the sand. And so I just... I don't think that's a small thing that he says, you know what, I am going to think the way that I want to think, but I still, there are things about this relationship that I, are, are valuable to me, and I'm going to choose it. And that, that is a decision that we all have to make at some point. So I don't think, I don't feel like she does that flippantly. That's the last thing I, I said. I, I agree. It's a decision we all have to make, and I'll leave it at that. Um, so anyway, this has been... Newberry Chronicles. Remember, you can reach out to us on newberrychronicles at gmail.com. And next book? Yeah, the next book that we're reading. Uh, so, as a reminder, we're going through the decades, picking one from each decade, and then we'll loop back around when we get to the present. Um, and so, this book was from the 50s. We're now in the 60s for next episode, which we've already touched on the 60s because we read A Wrinkle in Time, but we're not going to skip the 60s because it's a groovy time. And one of my favorite books is what we're reading next, and that's Upper Road Slowly by Irene Hunt. So, I've not read it. Not read it. So, it's wonderful. All right. Well, spoilers. (laughs) Um, So, anyway, that will be next time. I think it's that one's like 1967 or something like that. It's late 60s. Um, At any rate, that's what we'll be reading next Upper Road Slowly. I don't know if listeners are reading along with us, but if you are, be prepared. That's your homework. Um, so anything else before we close? We've almost got an hour. No. Is, man. Thanks for thanks for listening to us rant. Yeah, if you made it this far, <laughs> yeah, it's double the length of some of our episodes. So, um, yeah, until next time.